Let go of everyday worries and find your calm with positive prayer from Silent Unity, the newest in voice-activated technology, available on any Alexa-enabled device like the Amazon Echo. Each prayer and meditation on positive prayer will help strengthen, guide, and comfort you. To enable it, just say, Alexa, open positive prayer. You can ask for a specific prayer on topics like healing, prosperity, and comfort. Give it a try today. You're listening to Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Welcome to the Yoga Hour, offering insights and practices for spiritually conscious living in today's world. Here is your host, Dr. Laurel Trujillo. Welcome to the Yoga Hour, where we talk about yoga in all its depth and breadth as a path to spiritually conscious, fulfilled living in today's world. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, host and producer of the show. You can learn more about the Yoga Hour at our website, theyogahour.com. I am delighted today to have a guest and discuss Sanskrit, Sanskrit, the language of yoga. I'm joined today by Zoe Slatoff, who discovered yoga at the age of 15 and has been devoted to a daily practice ever since. After training with Patabi Joyce and Sharath in Mysore, India, Zoe was certified to teach. She has a master's degree in Asian languages and culture from Columbia University and is the author of Yoga Vataranam a Sanskrit textbook for yoga students which uses extracts from classical yoga texts to integrate traditional and academic methods for learning the language. You can find out more about Zoe Slidoff, her book, Yoga Vataranam, as well as links to audio files and chants at her website, ashtangayogaupperwestside.com. Ashtanga Yoga Upper West Side.com. So welcome, Zoe Slatoff. I'm really delighted that you can join me today on the Yoga Hour. Thank you, Laurel. I'm so happy to be here with you and everybody else. Um, Great. Looking forward to talking to you. So before we dive into our dialogue about Sanskrit, the language of yoga, let's dive in to a moment of contemplation, a yoga moment. So let's begin by just bringing our attention into the present moment, feeling our bodies in space, and particularly turning our attention to any surfaces that support our weight. So perhaps our feet are on the floor, We may be sitting in a chair, but just feeling those surfaces and how they are supporting our weight against gravity. And then turning our attention to the breath, wonderful tool that's always with us. And just noticing as we take a fully conscious breath, the next inhale and exhale. Noticing the cool air in the nostrils as it flows in and the warmer air in the nostrils as it flows out. Not trying to change the pattern of breathing, but just noticing. 
And as we rest here, right where we are, here's something to contemplate from the founder and spiritual director of the Yoga Hour, Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien, from her book, The Jewel of Abundance. If we identify with the personality or ego self, we are prone to think we need something that will improve us. With spiritual awareness, we still engage in helpful activities that hone our skills, enrich our situation in life, and allow us to make a positive contribution to others. We just don't mistake what we have or do with what we are. We realize that these things do not change the soul. Nothing improves or changes that. It is already complete. It is whole and unchanging. Knowing this frees us from restless striving, trying to be other than what we are, or attempting to fill a perceived lack that is not inherently true. Oh. So once again, Zoe Sladoff, welcome to the Yoga Hour. Again, I'm, I'm really delighted to have you as a guest on the show and to talk about Sanskrit and yoga. So how did you become interested in studying Sanskrit? Um, well, I was studying engineering, actually, originally, and um, I started practicing yoga, as you said, when I was 15. Um, and I met my teacher when he was in New York when I was 20. And um, I practiced with him here for a month. And at the end, he said, come to Mysore. And so I quit school, quit studying engineering, and <laughs> went to Mysore for four or five months. Um, and he was a Sanskrit scholar. And so I, and he used, you know, he knew many, many texts by heart. And he would sort of quote from them all the time. And I just, I'm a very curious person. Um, and I really wanted to know what he was saying. Um, so yeah, I, I was intrigued and I was staying, I was staying in this house. I had a couple of roommates and one of my roommates had a Sanskrit teacher who came to his house and mm. a couple other people would come over and they'd sort of go into his room and I'd hear these sounds coming from inside the room and I was like oh I, I want in on that <laughs> that sounds like fun <laughs> I was just struck when you said you or you had been studying engineering so it kind of seemed to me flew through my mind that you had been studying engineering of the outer world and then you started to study engineering <laughs> of the inner world with yoga right <laughs> exactly I mean it honestly doesn't feel that different you know it's just sort of a <laughs> A transformation, <laughs> a better fit for me. <laughs> oh. So yoga is, or Sanskrit rather, is described as the language of yoga. So tell us a little bit more about why that is. Um, well, most of the traditional texts are written in Sanskrit. Um, so if you sort of want to understand those teachings and know what the texts say, um you have to either learn Sanskrit or read um, or read texts in translation. Um. Yeah. 
Exactly. And for people who may only be familiar with yoga as a series of poses or asana in a class, um, they may hear Sanskrit words, but they may not realize how much they are the root of the yoga tradition about yoga philosophy, etc. So in your book, Yoga Vitaranam, you combine two different approaches to studying Sanskrit, the traditional method used in India and the Western academic approach. Can you describe those two, please, for our listeners and just uh, to give them a sense of how different it is, how different the two methods are? And then I should note that, as I said in the introduction, you use you kind of combine both of them in your in your textbook. Sure. Yeah, thank you. That's sort of that's sort of why I wrote it is that I had these two influences. um, And if you study in India, the traditional approach is called Shruti Parampara, which is this transmission through hearing. It's um, an oral, traditionally an oral language and passed on um, through recitation and through repetition. And the way, I mean, I think it, it still happens in some places in India, but traditionally the way you would learn would be you would memorize, you'd memorize basically the whole grammar book first before you were taught what anything meant at all. Um, and so there's this focus on sound and orality and, you know, before meaning. Whereas for us, most of us here, I think with our sort of Western upbringing, you know, we want to know what things mean. We don't want to sort of repeat things unless we know what we're saying. And so the Western academic approach tends to be much more, you know, book oriented and sort of, yeah, just learning things without that, without really that oral component. Um, and, you know, I think, I think there's, there's something to be said for bringing them together, keeping the oral component, but also teaching people what things mean. Um, and yeah, having, having studied in both ways, um, it, it seems for me, students, um, it, that it, yeah, mix the two together rather than going one way or the other. Great. I think that that really has a lot to be said for it in terms of an approach. And I would point to that you have a lot of audio files, as I mentioned, on your website, the um, Ashtanga Yoga Upper West Side dot com. If, if listeners are interested in digging a little bit more into that. Yeah, I have a complete audio for the book. I also, yeah, I teach online classes from the book that have an oral component. I do chanting. So, yeah, there's definitely that focus as well. So for those who are unfamiliar with Sanskrit as a language, can you describe some characteristics of Sanskrit? Sure. Um, Maybe the best place to start is with the word itself. Um, The word Sanskrit in Sanskrit is Samskrita. Um, And the word Samskrita means refined or polished. And it really is a refined language. There are lots of rules, um, which people often find a bit intimidating at first. But it, as a language, it it makes a lot of sense. there's yeah a lot of many different noun forms and many different verb forms and different rules of how words combine but when you actually study them they sort of they come together in a way that um yeah that feels sort of cohesive and you know my my engineering mind uh, (laughs) likes the way things fit together as opposed to um the prakrit languages which is the name which means natural 
um, these sort of modern spoken Indian languages are considered to be Prakrita, which means, yeah, they're, they're more natural. They're more sort of a, a natural speech as opposed to, mm. um, yeah, a systematic one in this way. I don't know very much about Sanskrit, but I do know a little bit. And I know that there's a lot more, there are a lot more letters in the Sanskrit alphabet than there are in the English alphabet, which just has 26. And I think Sanskrit has over 50. Is that right? Um, It depends who's counting, but (laughs) close to 50. And then my understanding is that each each what one of the things that differentiates the Sanskrit alphabet from the English alphabet is that in English, you can have a letter like C that can be a hard C like cat or it can be a soft C like city. And my understanding in Sanskrit is that each letter only has one one pronunciation. Is that right? Exactly. And so that's one way in which maybe you could say that it's easier Um And in fact, in Sanskrit, you don't really have letters so much as syllables. So Mm -hmm. you generally, you don't learn a C in that sort of way you learn cha, right? Mm -hmm. All the letters are learned with the letter letter a attached. And so Mm -hmm. they become syllables rather than actual letters. You wrote this book about integrating these... um, integrating these two methods of studying Sanskrit, and you do focus, I mean, the subtitle of the book that I don't know that I mentioned is the translation of yoga. And so for your source material in the book, you really draw from yoga texts, from Patanjali's Yoga Sutra, other yoga texts, um, which makes it a really lovely textbook for anyone who is drawn to studying Sanskrit through their interest in yoga. So I just wanted to point that out first. but why do you think that it's important for yoga students and teachers to learn perhaps even just a little bit of Sanskrit? What does that bring to our practice? Um, well, just to respond to that first part, I mean, the reason, one of the other reasons I wrote my book is that, you know, there are a lot of people who may be interested in studying Sanskrit, but it takes six months to a year before you can actually read anything that you would want to read. Um, so my idea has always been to get people reading as soon as possible. And, you know, if you need training wheels, I will give you training wheels and I will hold your hand and, you know, but get into the text as soon as possible. Um, And so, yes, I start with um, reading texts right away from chapter two, really. Um, I mean, in chapter one, we're already reading yoga related words, but in chapter two, my students are actually translating, translating verses. And I guess, you know, there are a lot of reasons why I think people who are interested in yoga and who practice yoga should learn at least a little bit. Um, One just simple one is pronunciation. Um, If you're teaching yoga and if you're using these words, um, we want to make sure that you're saying them correctly. Um, And then the other is, you know, to have an idea of where the practice comes from. And reading translations can be can be misleading. Um, translations are pretty much always interpretations. Um, every word in Sanskrit has many, many, many meanings. And, you know, everybody brings their own slant to it, um, which is normal. Um, and, you know, but as a reader, 
if you don't know that, and if the translator doesn't, you know, may or may not make that known, or maybe they make it known in the introduction or at the end, you know, you're not actually reading the text if you're reading a translation. Um, so even if you just study enough Sanskrit to know, okay, this is this person's interpretation of that word, you know, just so you can have some sort of relationship with the text itself. And it doesn't mean that you need to go out and, you know, publish your own translations. It's just having some relationship to the text yourself. Yeah, no, that's great. One of the things I appreciated is that you you give actually, you pull 78 different definitions from this dictionary, V.S. Opte's dictionary, uh, of the the uh, meanings of the Sanskrit word yoga. Again, 78 <laughs> different definitions. And I didn't want to read all 78, but I did just pull several just to give listeners an idea of what we're talking about here. These are all definitions of the Sanskrit word yoga. Union, joining, touch, connection, employment, a yoke, fitness, occupation, trick, fraud, plan, zeal, opportunity, wealth, contemplation of the Supreme Spirit, as well as a system of philosophy established by Patanjali. And again, those are each, <laughs> I don't even think I got to 20, <clears throat> but those are each def different definitions of the Sanskrit word yoga. So given that, I think it helps us understand why there are so many commentaries on classic texts like Patanjali's Yoga Sutras and the Bhagavad Gita. And I also see some of the challenges that it presents for the translator. Would you like to say a little bit more about that? <laughs> um, sure. Yeah, no, I, I love that list. Um, and it's true for most words. And that's, you know, mm -hmm. that's another thing, learning a bit of Sanskrit you can look words up in the dictionary yourself. Um, you kind of need to know some Sanskrit and Sanskrit alphabetical order to look words up and to be able to read the words. Um, but then, yeah, you have these lists. And, you know, and they're generally given, especially in that dictionary, in order of frequency of use. But it's interesting to see the different ways these words can be used. And as you said, um, this is one of the main reasons that so many commentaries have been written in Sanskrit on these texts. And um, commentaries perform a lot of different functions. They have, you know, sort of philosophical debates within the commentaries often. Um, but one of the sort of very important functions that they perform is to give synonyms of words. You know, so they will say yoga and then they'll give you a synonym that says, you know, yoga as in this sense of the word the one that they think, you know, in different commentaries might say something different. Um, but to give you, yeah, to give you that sense. Um, but as a translator, you're faced with so many choices. You know, if you have a different choice for every single word, even if you only have five words, you know, it's then five times five, right? It's like <laughs> this matrix, this growing matrix, matrix. And if you're trying to translate an entire text, it's just, you know, it's exponential. Um, and so, yeah, it's, I think it, just having some relationship to that yourself and even knowing that that's what's happening, um, is helpful, but it's, it's the fun of it. I mean, it's why I love translating. I, you know, it doesn't, it never gets boring or old or, <laughs> you know, um, yeah, it keeps, keeps growing. <laughs> yeah. 
So you do have opportunities in the textbook to do some translation, <clears throat> which I, I thought looked like it, it might be interesting and fun if I ever got to that level. Um, <laughs> so while many students or, or yoga teachers may not want to study Sanskrit to the level where they could do their own translation, you do mention benefits to being able to do your own translation. Would you comment on that for our listeners who might be interested in digging into something like your textbook and why they might why they might benefit from perhaps a little more Sanskrit knowledge than just learning the pronunciation, correct pronunciation of words? I mean, I think there's a lot of different levels on on which it works. I mean, my students often say, you know, even just from the beginning, learning learning to read and write the alphabet, you know, it uses a different part of your brain and even in and of itself, you know, even before you get to the texts, just doing that is meditative, you know, mm -hmm. sort of writing, yeah. writing the letters and, and saying the sounds out loud. And I mean, my students often, you know, I have people who like to do it in the morning and people who like to do it before bed because it helps them sleep better. And it sort of, you know, helps to get them into a kind of contemplative state. Um, but then when you start reading texts, I tend to think of it, it's kind of like puzzle solving, you know, it's like, or like a treasure hunt. So you're, so, you know, you're, things just make sense. And because um, they're yoga related texts, if you have a yoga practice, you'll often read something and think, oh, that might apply to my practice. Um, I use a lot of verses from the Bhagavad Gita, um, other texts too, but um, it's particularly sort of both relevant and it's a good text to read. The Yoga Sutra is actually really hard um, because it uses a lot of compounds, but the Bhagavad Gita is relatively accessible um, with some help. And, mm. but yeah, I think it, I think it, it, it's fun and it's, it's a lot of work. I mean, it's, you know, it, it takes effort. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I like your description. I like your description of it as a puzzle, though. I think that's kind of that's kind of cool to think about it that way and think about all these each different word having so many different meanings and then trying to slot those you know together into something that makes sense uh, for you. So let's turn uh, the conversation to looking at Sanskrit words that are commonly used in Hatha Yoga classes and really talking about the pronunciation and also the meaning of the Sanskrit words. So let's start with perhaps the one that's most familiar to people, namaste. So what does namaste mean and did I pronounce it correctly? <laughs> well, sort of. <laughs> they should really be, so in Sanskrit there's a difference between a short a uh and a long ah. Uh -huh. And depending, you know, um, they can be very different words. So, for example, the word mala is a garland, but mala means impurity with the mm -hmm. short us. Um, but so in it's really namaste. So there's short us. Everybody likes okay. to say ah, but it's an uh, namaste, like in bus. Namaste. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. Um, and it's actually two words. Namas is namaha. It's the same thing where you sometimes hear namo, mm -hmm. namo, namas, it's all the same thing. And it really just means salutations or a bow. Um, and then te means to you. So literally, it's just a bow to you or salutations to you. Although we often add, add a bit of, <laughs> add a bit to it. But it, yeah, that's what it means in its essence. 
Oh, that's great. That's great. And it's really good to know that I wasn't pronouncing it correctly. So I can can change that. So one of the most common Sanskrit words that may be used in a Hatha yoga class is asana. So how about that one? How did I do on the pronunciation of asana? Pretty good. Yes, that one you got. Um, (laughs) It's again, it's got these short and long, the uh and the ah, which is the thing that people get most confused. So here, it's a long ah at the beginning, and then there are two short uhs. So it's ah sana. Ah sana. Yeah. Um, And then, and then I think it just means pose. Is that right? Well, I should say for Sanskrit, it probably has multiple meanings. (laughs) I mean, it really means seat, actually. I mean, traditionally, you know, the asanas that we know today, the postures that we know, most of them are, you know, relatively recent inventions um, in the last thousand years or so, certainly. And, um, you know, traditionally, and in the Yoga Sutra, for example, you know, asana really referred to a seated position for meditation. And the word asana um, comes from the verb as, which means to sit. So, yeah, literally a seat, like a, a seat for meditation. That's so interesting, because I think most people wouldn't think of that as the meaning, as just more generally as a pose, rather than exactly. a, a seat. So that's that's interesting. Um, and it kind of points to the fact that in Patanjali's Yoga Sutra, there are, um, there are, so few of the of the 190 is 196 uh, sutras have anything to do with asana. I think that what is it two or something like that. So um, <laughs> just a couple, yeah, three. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and with that, unbelievably, we've come almost to the end of the of the uh, first segment. Um, you're listening to the Yoga Hour uh, with my with my guest, author, and Sanskrit and Ashtanga yoga teacher, Zoe Slatoff. You can find out more information about her at her website, ashtangayogaupperwestside.com. We will be posting links to her website on our website, theyogahour.com. We welcome your comments and questions. You can always reach us. Contact us through our website, theyogahour.com. Um, I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, host and producer of the show. And when we come back from the break, we'll be digging more deeply into Sanskrit. In particular, uh, do a little bit more about words that are from uh, yoga classes that you may hear, and then also paying some attention to words from the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, which we just uh, mentioned. Um, Very interesting words and words that I think are so uh, fascinating because they point to things that we don't have English equivalents for. So we will be talking about that. We'll be right back.
Are you ready to experience the rich interconnection of spirituality, orientation, and identity? If so, plan to attend Liberating Your Divine Identity, a retreat at Unity Village during Pride Month, June 9th to the 12th. This soul-filled retreat is facilitated by LGBTQIA Unity Ministers with workshops and ceremonies to cultivate a deeper awareness of our spiritual nature. Register at unityvillage.org forward slash divine 2022 Experience the difference. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Welcome back to the Yoga Hour. Insights and practices for spiritually conscious living. Welcome back from the break. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, producer and host of the show. And I'm here speaking with Zoe Slatoff. I'd like to turn our attention. Well, actually, let's go back because there are a few more words that you and I talked about on the break, Zoe, that I wanted to get to. So one of them was we talk about, I I will just say it how it is normally said, Hatha yoga classes. So uh, tell me a little bit about Hatha and why I shouldn't be saying it the way I have been always saying it. (laughs) Um, The word that is pronounced Hatha is um, actually Hatta. Um, So a short A, and then it's what's known as a retroflex, an aspirated ta with the tongue behind the teeth. So Hatta, of course, nobody ever says that, um, but that is what it's meant to be, Hatta yoga. And also, oddly, um traditionally hatha means force so hatha yoga is the yoga of force even though you know we often think of it as being a more gentle form of yoga hmm. okay so hatha <laughs> hatha yoga um and then i wanted to also dig into the word pranayama so can would you talk about that would you talk about the about prana and then pranayama and what those mean Sure. Prana is the breath, the life force, um, often the upward, right? The upward moving breath as opposed to apana. It's another often mispronounced word, apana, the downward breath. Um, And ayama generally means control or restraint. Um, It can also mean extension, but it tends to mean control of the prana, control of the breath, restraint of the breath um, through various methods um good was there any are there any other words before we dive into the yoga sutras are there any other words that you wanted to mention from yoga classes that that students might just hear really commonly um hmm. <laughs> well, that was def- <laughs> one of the big ones um yeah, yeah. Um, if something comes to mind, I will. <laughs> okay. yeah, no problem. No problem. So turning our attention to Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, which is one of the foundational texts of yoga. And I wanted to talk about several Sanskrit words that are used in that text. For those unfamiliar with Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, they were compiled by Patanjali from prior Vedic knowledge. So Patanjali did not make these up, but he compiled 
we assume he <laughs> compiled them from uh, from prior Vedic knowledge, and it occurred sometime around the fourth century of the current era. And the the texts is in the form of aphorisms, which are very brief phrases that were easier to memorize because originally they that was what was done. They were memorized. The Sanskrit word uh, sutra, because these are the Yoga Sutras. Uh, Sanskrit word sutra means a string or thread, and it predates but is related to the English word suture, so yoga sutras of Patanjali, and they begin with the word atta. Yogacharya O'Brien often speaks about the importance and auspiciousness of this being the very first word of the yoga sutras. So what does the Sanskrit word atta mean? Well, two things first. Um, one... Um, Patanjali is another good one. It, they're both short us, so Patanjali rather than Patanjali. Um, Patanjali. Yeah, with a short uh, Patanjali. Okay. Um, and then this first word is Atta. So they're both short us here too, Atta. Um, and yeah, Atta is a very important word. Um, the commentators go on and on and on for pages about what it means. Um, and <laughs> In and of itself, it just means now, um, now, or sometimes it means then. It's used not just for the Yoga Sutra, but at the beginning of other sutras, like the Brahma Sutra. Um, and it means now, but it also has the connotation of now, at this auspicious moment, for the student who is ready, you know, because you've done all of these things previously, and because you are now headed in this direction, blah, 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 this is the perfect moment and you are in the perfect place, and that is why you are here, and therefore, you know, here we go. <laughs> right. Um. <laughs> well, there was even that book that was written not that long ago, several years ago, The Power of Now. So that was a whole book that was written. That was Eckhart Tolle. That. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> One of the things that I do appreciate about Sanskrit is that there are so many words in Sanskrit Sanskrit contains so many words relating to yoga, relating to the study of consciousness that really don't have a direct English translation. So, for example, the word chitta. So what does chitta mean? I mean, chitta means the mind or consciousness. Um, yeah, there's a lot, there could be a lot involved within that, the different sort of components of the mind, the manas, the sort of thinking mind, the ahankara, the ego, um, the buddhi, the intellect or discerning faculty. Um, and yeah, chitta kind of lump, lumps it all together. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And it, and it is also contained in Patanjali's Yoga Sutra 1.2, Yogash Chitta Vritti Nirodaha. Now, I'm sure that you could correct my pronunciation a little bit there, but um, <laughs> yoga chitta vritti narodaha. So we've already talked about chitta as being this mental field is how I've, I've heard it because it's the mind, but somehow it's, it seems like when we talk about the mind from a Western perspective, it doesn't seem to me to be as kind of finely delineated as it is in, for example, what you just said of component, these having these components of the sense mind or manas, the, the uh, um, um, 
buddhi, you know, the discernment, ahamkara, the ego. Anyway, um, getting back to this Sutra 1.2, and, and I would also point out, because you talked about, we talked about how each word can mean so many different things in Sanskrit, but then these are very short sayings. So this is the whole deal. And this is really like the, this is the definition of yoga that's in 1.2, this Sutra 1.2, yoga shittavriti nirodaha. So there's only, I mean, I guess how you, I don't know how you count it, but maybe four, <clears throat> four words. Uh, we've already talked about chitta as being this mental field. So what about vritti? So the vrittis are the fluctuating thoughts or turning. The word vritti comes from the root vrit. Um, nouns tend to come from verbs. So if you look back at the verbal root, you can sort of get a sense of what the noun means. And vrit means to turn. So it really is those, it's those turning thoughts, the ones that go around and around and around in your head, um, which is kind of a perfect description. Um, and beyond thoughts, though, right? It's also, but aren't emotions also potentially mm -hmm. chitta vrittis? Yes, yeah. All turnings of, of the all mind. Of the, all of the turnings of the mind, right. yeah. Okay, so we've got yoga, chitta vritti. So yoga has something to do with these, you know, these turns of the mind. And then nirodaha. Yeah, nirodaha, it's often translated as the cessation or the stopping I prefer to translate it as more of like the stilling. Mm. Um, and this is a compound, chitta vritti nirodaha. And in general, in a compound, you go from right to left. So it's the it's the nirodha that is the stilling of the fluctuating, the turning thoughts, the turning, yeah, emotion, all of that, the components of the mind. Um, and that is yoga. And, and that is yoga. <laughs> exactly. It's the sort of, this is what I always, of tell my students it's like this is the simplest kind of sentence it's just x equals y you know what is yoga yoga is you don't even need a verb um it just is okay <laughs> that's right that's right which i think is a, it's a definition of yoga that might surprise people who attend uh, uh, a see if i can do it hatha <laughs> yoga class right and it's it's not just the poses it's what we exactly. talk try to talk about here on the yoga hour is yoga in all its depth and breadth it's really um this another translation of the word yoga is is uh, samadhi right or at least it has been um i have seen it seen it uh written it that can. way it can be yeah um so another really common sutra that we talk about is uh, Sutra 112, which is associated, um, actually, I saw it in Baba Haridas's translation, he really puts them side by side, 1.2 and, and 1.12. And that is about, has a couple other important words in it, I think. So abhyasa, abhyasa. So what does abhyasa mean? Abhyasa is practice, um, and not just practice, but it, it has this idea of repetition. So it's like repeated practice, doing it over and over and over again. Um, I'm always telling my Sanskrit students, you know, should do a Vyasa. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it, it is this idea of this, yeah, repetition mm -hmm. and diligence. <laughs> diligence, yes, yeah, yeah. And then another word in this Sutra 112 is vairagyam. At least I always said it vairagyam, but then um, I saw in 
um, Baba Haridas's translation, he writes it in English as something that looks like Vairagiyabhyayam or something, Bayam. <laughs> How do you say it? Well, that's actually, I mean, there are two words, Abhyasa and Vairagya. And, but there's a compound in that sutra, right? The, the sutra is Abhyasa Vairagya Bhyam Tanirodaha. The Abhyam is what's called the ablative dual ending, which just means, it basically means from Abhyasa and Vairagya. So from practice and from Vairagya, which is detachment. Um, so you need to do your practice diligently, and then you also need to be unattached to that practice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the results, the results and of the fruits. Yes. Yeah. Exactly right. the, the quote you read out at the very beginning. Right. <laughs> so exactly I think the listeners that. are getting are getting this sense that there aren't really very many words <laughs> in there that are that are translated a lot of different ways. Um, and just to just as an example of that, so um, these words, the uh, Narodaha that we talked about, the stilling, I like that, I liked your translation of that stilling, abhyasa or steady practice, and then vairagyam, dispassion. So one translation from Barbaharidas is they, parenthesis, the modifications, close parenthesis, are controlled by practice and dispassion. And then as an alternative translation, here is Roy Eugene Davis's translation, the troublesome influences of mental impressions should be restrained, weakened, and removed by meditation practice and dispassionate non-attachment. So again, just a couple of different translations. Mm-hmm. I thought I thought it would be interesting for listeners to hear those two. Um, would you like to add anything to those two? Um, sure. Yeah, the Tanni the it's the Nirodha, and the stilling of Tut. Tut refers back to those Chittavrittis. So again, the sutras are very, as you mentioned before, they're very terse. Um, you have to sort of know what's referring to what, but it is talking about, yeah, the stilling of those um, fluctuations um, that happens from or by, by means of, um, by um, Vairagya, and of yasa by, uh, you can also take it as instrumental by means of practice and detachment. Um, and I tend to think of it as like, you're turning the volume way down on those fluctuating thoughts in order to sort of turn the volume up on the self and, you know, mm-hmm. the things you want to, the thing you want to pay attention to. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's great. Turning the volume down. I like that. And that is what it feels like to me in, in meditation as I gradually settle into meditation, how turn the attention within and originally get so distracted, you know, continually being drawn. My mind is continually drawn back into those thoughts, back into those thoughts, and then using that focus, um, that uh, um, dharana, the focus, you know, one of the eight limbs of, you know, focusing the attention back on whatever your uh, point of focus is, and then gradually those thoughts do settle, turns the volume, as you said, gets turned down. So very nice. The type of yoga that's taught at the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment is Kriya Yoga, which comes originally from the version of Kriya Yoga that's taught at CSE, comes from Paramahansa Yogananda through his direct disciple, Roy Eugene Davis, who was the teacher of Yogacharya O'Brien. 
And in Patanjali's Yoga Sutra, Kriya Yoga, in particular Kriya Yoga, is defined as having three main practices. And those are great words to talk about, I thought. So we have tapas, svadhyaya, and ishvara pranidhan. So let's start with tapas. So what's the definition of tapas? Um, so again, there's short us here, so tapas. tapas. Um, and tapas is discipline. Um, it comes from a root tap, which means to burn or heat up. So I tend, I like to think of it as sort of a burning devotion, you know, a burning discipline. Um, tapas is what gets you gets you going in your practice. Um, and exactly. But what I thought was so interesting, the way I um, perhaps the way it was taught to me by Yogacharya mm -hmm. O'Brien. So I think of, for example, um, gossip and how I think gossip is often harmful to the person that you're gossiping about. And so perhaps I know something about someone and I really, really want to talk about that with my friend. I really want to just say it, you know, but I don't because I don't want to. I don't, you know, in a bigger sense, I don't want to do that. And, you know, if you've ever had that situation where you're tempted to do something that a bigger part of yourself knows that you really shouldn't do, to me, that's a real burning <laughs> There is a burning <laughs> quality there that you can experience where you're, you know, you're, you're trying not to, you're trying not to. <laughs> That's why I thought they were, it was so insightful to use that word that had to do with fire. Uh, that was great. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's interesting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so another of the three, three uh, main practices of Kriya Yoga is uh, Svadhyaya. Mm -hmm. How did I do on that pronunciation? That was great. Okay, Svadhyaya. <laughs> Perfect. Yes, yeah, Svadhyaya, it's literally Sva plus Adhyaya. Adhyaya is study, study of the self, um, which doesn't generally mean, um, you know, going to therapy, um, although perhaps in a modern context it could and should, but um, traditionally it doesn't. Um, it's more study of the self traditionally by things like japa, like repetition of mantras like om, um, and sort of getting to turning in turning inside by getting to know the self in in that way. Um, and as you look at, we don't have time to really go into them, but there are the all of the yamas and the niyamas. Um, when we're um, practicing all of those, we do learn a lot about ourselves. And so I, I like to think of it really broadly. There are so many ways that we can learn about ourselves, and that's all part of the of Kriya Yoga. And then once we learn those things, and then we set our direction, it can then feed back into the tapas, feed back into the practice of you learn other things that you want to practice, other ways that you that you want to um, make little corrections in in how you're living your life. And so I I always think that's interesting how there it kind of is a uh, it's a it's a it's a feedback loop there, you know, where you practice. <laughs> sure. You have to you have to start with the you know the discipline of tapas, and then you learn more about yourself, and then that shows you more about how you need to practice more tapas, <laughs> which <laughs> teaches you more about yourself. And so it's this it's this little uh, it's this little circle. Mm -hmm. So then the, yeah, they work the, together. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> sure. So then the third one after tapas and svadhyaya or um, self-discipline and self-study is Ishvara Pranidhan. So what would you like to say about that, about that as a translation? 
Um, pranidhana is like surrender, or sometimes it's thought of as like offering one's actions um, to Ishvara, to the divine. So it is this idea of, yeah, of like this kind of surrender. Um, I often think of the, like, if you think of the three together in terms of my own yoga practice, um, the Ishvara Pranidhana is the breath, you know, the sort of the breath is kind of the surrender in a certain sense. Um, the Svadhyaya is like the focus, you know, perhaps the Drishti where you're looking. Um, and then the Tapas is like the actual, you know, the discipline, the Asana where the, uh, yeah, the sort of more external um, disciplined action um, and sort of bringing together the discipline and the focus and, and the surrender. And the surrender. Exactly. That's a really nice summary. So for listeners who want to deepen their yoga practice through learning more about Sanskrit, but aren't really interested in all of like the grammatical rules and all like different tenses of verbs and stuff like that, what would you recommend as a place to start? Um, I think sort of as we talked a little bit about before, maybe just reading different translations, you know, you can get a sort of secondhand sense just from looking at different, just like you, as you read us a couple of different translations um, of Sutra 112, you can already see, oh, there's this interesting, there are these different flavors, right, that we can right. get um, from different translations. Um, another, I have a fair number of students who really like to chant, um, and they don't want to do Sanskrit, um, but they like to chant. Um, I do a little chanting thing on Tuesdays and Thursdays at noon, uh, uh, Eastern Standard Time, um, just half an hour. It's free for anybody who's interested. It's on my website, and it's it's a good way to sort of get in without having to do very much. Yeah, <laughs> without. Yeah. That, that's great. That's great. I think those are really good. Those are really good suggestions. And I did want to mention about the chanting. You also have audio files that on your chanting page on your website that people can download. So you can do turn yes. in tune in live. And then there's also some pre-recorded ones that you can just listen to, which are nice. So we've come to the last few minutes of the show. In closing, what words of encouragement or inspiration would you like to leave with our listeners? Um, well, maybe since we've been talking about Abhyasa, uh, my favorite, one of my favorite sutras um, is a couple later than that, 114, uh, um, and it's all about consistency, right? I sort of start off my book with this one, and it's, I think it's true for yoga practice, it's true for Sanskrit practice, that, you know, practice establishes, that practice establishes firm ground through the Bhumihi when it is done for Dirgakala for a long time, Nairantariya without interruption, Satkara, so also with devotion. Mm, um, lovely. Really lovely. And then also with the with the Vairagya, like I mean I feel like back to the quote from uh Yagacharya from the beginning that just mm -hmm. it's this sort of not being a you know, acting but not being attached. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that seemed like a good one to remember that <laughs> we can certainly try and um, improve ourselves, deepen our study through perhaps some of the things that we've talked about today, but realizing that the self is unchanging and that doesn't need to change, that it's already whole and complete. And I, I love I love that one. 
<laughs> it's very reassuring yeah. to me. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so here we are at the end of the show. You've been listening to the Yoga Hour. It's been my pleasure to share this time with you. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, host and producer of the Yoga Hour. And I have been talking about Sanskrit, the language of yoga, with Zoe Slatoff, the author of a textbook on Sanskrit called, called Yoga Vataranam, The Translation of Yoga. You can find out more about Zoe Slatoff, her book, as well as links to audio files and chants at her website, Ashtanga Yoga. UpperWestSide.com, Ashtanga Yoga UpperWestSide.com. And we will be posting links to her website on our website, TheYogaHour.com. Thank you so much, Zoe, for joining me today on the show. Thank you. Join me next time on the Yoga Hour next week when I'll be joined by founder and spiritual director of the Yoga Hour, Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien. We will be reflecting on the life and legacy of Lahiri Mahasaya in a program on September 30th, which is Lahiri Mahasaya's birthday. The program airs live from 8 to 9 a.m. on Unity Online Radio and will be released as a podcast later that day. There will also be a special online program honoring Lahiri Mahasaya from noon to 1.30 p.m. Pacific, which you can access from the CSE website, csecenter.org. We also encourage you to join us for the many online programs offered by Yogacharya O'Brien and the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment. Our programs include morning meditation, which occurs daily from 6.30 to 7.30 a.m. Pacific, daily afternoon meditation from 4 to 4.30 p.m. Pacific, and Sunday satsang from 10 to 11 Pacific time each week. Uh, we especially welcome you to join us on September 26th, 2021, as Yogacharya O'Brien continues her satsang series on How Shall We Live Simply, Abundantly, and Wakefully. You can learn more about CSE online programs at two websites, ellengraceobrien.com, it's O-B-R-I-A-N.com, ellengraceobrien.com, or csecenter.org. The Yoga Hour is a service project of the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment, a meditation center in the Kriya Yoga tradition. CSE welcomes people from all backgrounds who are seeking self and God realization. Remember to go to the Yoga Hour website, theyogahour.com, to learn more about us and access our library of podcasts. If you are enjoying the show, share it with a friend. Thank you to the Yoga Hour team, founder and spiritual director, Yogacharya O'Brien, assistant producers Anne Hayes and Mickey Coronado, and as always, Jeff Comfort and Louis Pagan in the sound booth at Unity Online Radio. I look forward to being with you again. Until then, remember, you carry your own healing and wholeness within you. Share your peace and joy with all you meet. Bye now. Thank you for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Let go of everyday worries and find your calm with positive prayer from Silent Unity, the newest in voice-activated technology, available on any Alexa-enabled device like the Amazon Echo. 
Each prayer and meditation on Positive Prayer will help strengthen, guide, and comfort you. To enable it, just say, Alexa, open Positive Prayer. You can ask for a specific prayer on topics like healing, prosperity, and comfort. Give it a try today.